If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to 2 Timothy. There we resume our study this morning, continuing our look at this second letter to Timothy, the second of three what is called historically pastoral epistles. Just by way of reminder, we remember that the pastoral epistles make up three letters that Paul wrote, two to Timothy and one to Titus. We spent some time looking at 1 Timothy earlier this year, and now we are in 2 Timothy and continuing on with several themes that are very similar to what we saw in 1 Timothy. And we just need to remember uh, one of the things that, you know, so often people get off track theologically or biblically because they're trying to find something new or novel in a text, some idea that hasn't been expressed before so they can, we can get this new idea. And we need to remember that that was never the object and goal of the biblical writers. The writers of Scripture, influenced by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, their goal was never to bring something novel to the people. Now, in some instances, was it novel? Perhaps. When we're looking at the deeper theology of Christ that we see laid out in Romans that we've looked at before, yeah, there were some things in a Greek world, a secular world, and even a Jewish world that were novel, i.e. they were newer. But remember, the goal is not to be novel or new for novelty or newness sake. The goal is to speak truth. And so when we see a biblical writer like Paul in this instance writing to Timothy similarly, what he's already written, we remember what is the goal is to undergird the truth that Timothy probably already knows because the goal is not for Timothy every time he reads to go, oh, I didn't know that. The goal is for when Timothy reads it to be, yes, Father, help me do this. Yes, Spirit, help me keep this before my eyes. And so as we're looking at this, the goal here is for us maybe not to learn something new, though if you do, praise Jesus. If you learn something new today, praise God. But the goal is to be reaffirmed in what we know so that we have confidence and boldness to persevere in the strength of Christ in the simplicity of the gospel. Remember, there are lots of complex themes to the gospel. We start talking about the union of, of human nature and divinity, what's called the hypostatic union. Yes, that is infinitely complex. But the gospel, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God is a simple idea. The idea that what I was needed to die because it was already dead in sin. And what I am is the life of Christ made in me. And so the life I now live, I live because of Christ. I am a new creation in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so as we're thinking through 2 Timothy this morning, Paul is picking back up where he left off last. We've made it through chapter 1, verse 7 thus far. And he's beginning to talk to Timothy about what it means to be a gospel minister. How do we live our lives? What are we preserved to do. Because if you're in Christ this morning, you have been preserved. Uh, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, or, or what is spoken about Jesus' ministry among us is quoted from the Old Testament about Him not letting His holy ones see decay. And so there, there is this sense of, that's coming out in this text that we're going to read here in just a moment, a sense of preservation. But why? To what end? What's the goal of that? 
Is it simply to escape hell, or is it something far bigger and richer? Well, we're going to argue that it's something far bigger and richer, though it is a joy and worth celebrating that we do escape hell. So without further delay, let's turn our attention back to the Word of God this morning. We're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8, and we will read through the end of the chapter. So we will read through verse 18. Beloved of God, hear again the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So as the reading of God's Word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, your Word is before us. Our hearts lay open and bare before you. Now use this Word as a precise school, a precise tool, a precise instrument to cut away all that is dead and not living, and to supply all that is life-giving and hopeful, that we might walk and live in the imitation of Christ. This through Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, If you've attended the chapel for any amount of time, you've heard me give some commentary on war here and there. I've talked about uh, how prolific war has been since man fell into sin and all sorts of other things. Well, if you take everything we've ever said about war or everything maybe you've ever read, we can sum up war up in a very simple sentence. War is an ugly business. Now, we could argue in some senses that it's necessary. We could argue in some senses that for peace to reign, there has got to be a little bit of war. And, and, and maybe those are true. Maybe you would argue against that. Maybe you'd argue for that. It doesn't matter. The idea here is because of the evil of sin… Because Genesis 3 is true, because we are the, the ripple effect of Genesis 3 in our lives, war is inevitable. It is a sad reality nonetheless, because man is corrupted by wickedness. Humanity in its natural state lays under the curse of sin, and we need to know that because of that, war is inevitable. And you don't have to look far in Scripture to discern the truth of that. So in Genesis 3, we have the fall. In Genesis 4, you have your first murder. And then the life-taking, it ripples out from there, and it never gets any better. Because of the curse of sin, war becomes inevitable. 
Now, when we think about war in general, there are some specifics about war that also could uh, contribute to the sad reality of what war is. One of the sad components of war is prisoners of war, POWs. And when we, when we look at the history of war, we can see as long as there's been war, there's been prisoners of war. And prisoners of war, if you read their testimonies, they have the hardest stories and testimonies about war that we could fathom, whether they are endlessly tortured, whether their minds and bodies are broken, whether in ancient times they are sold into slavery. If you can imagine the horrific nature of war and then being captured in said war and then having to endure the evil of, of humanity in an, at an even deeper level, we can begin to see how awful, though we've, many of us have never experienced, war can be. But there's something interesting here, and I'm not making light of survivors of war, but there's something interesting about survivors of war and survivors uh, or those who have been imprisoned during war and who survive it. I love history. You know this by now. Richard and I share this love of history together. And I'm fascinated by war history, both the strategy of war, but also just the history of war in general. I've read many, many accounts of POWs, and they never get easy to read. Because you see, these accounts, these testimonies, these testimonies of these survivors, these men and women who have made it through war and imprisonment, they shed light on the truth of war. Perhaps, or I know that many of you have read the book Unbroken, Laura Hillenbrand's book about Louis Zamperini, World War II, one of the best books I've ever read. One of the best books I've ever read because it captures the human spirit and man's capacity for so much wickedness. But how, how we can persevere through that wickedness. Maybe you've gone a little bit further back and you've read a little bit about Andersonville, the Civil War prison that you can go visit in Georgia. It's horrific when you read the stories from there. What man, what, what human beings can do to other human beings in the name of war and in the name of that's my enemy is horrific. Why are these stories important, though? Is it so that, we can, so that we can cure our morbid curiosities about what it must be like to be in horrific uh, positions? No. It's important to remember what evil can do. It's important to take one group of people and set them against another group of people, and every beef they have is relatively arbitrary and subjective, and the things they can do to one another in the name of being the good guys. It's a fascinating read. It's a fascinating study. But when we look at the men and women who are preserved from war, I want us to see that that is not a useless or an unimportant detail. I think, I'm convinced this is God's means of helping us see the reality of when evil comes to a head, what happens. Why are these men and women preserved? For a myriad of reasons, I'm sure, one of which is for us to be informed about the horror, the reality, and the evil of what is happening. When I think about this, okay, so how do we take this and think about it in our Christian worldview and through the lens of what it means to be a Christian in God's world? Well, one of the things I think it means is that we often lose sight as believers why God has preserved us up to now. If you are sitting here this morning... God has preserved you. You are here because of God's providential mercy. 
Some of you have great testimonies. I mean, when I was 18 years old, I was in a car accident. I think I've shared this before. I was, we flipped end over end. I was not wearing my seatbelt. It was May of 1994. My face smashed through a windshield on the first throw, and on the second, it threw me clean out of the vehicle. You know what the state trooper said when he showed up and I was up walking around talking nonsense? I don't remember most of it. He joked. He said, well, I guess somebody wants you alive. And he laughed about it, which I was thinking, man, that's kind of morbid. I mean, my head was all torn up. And he's, anyway, um, but he was right. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. Somebody did want me alive because in just a few short years, I would walk through the doors of Teen Challenge, a hopeless man addicted to drugs and be transformed to something completely new. He was right. Somebody wanted me alive, and we know that somebody. His name is God. You are alive this morning. Maybe you don't have that story, and that's great because it was a painful ordeal. But you're alive this morning because God has preserved you. God has preserved us because we are objects of His love and mercy, because we are the objects of salvation. But here's what I would say. In other words, God has preserved you not for anything that you or I do, but God has also preserved us to not do nothing. He's preserved us for a purpose, to live and to labor for the good of His name. So when we think about why are we preserved, well, we are preserved because God loves us, but we're also preserved to live boldly for Christ. When we think about Jesus at the night of His betrayal, do you remember? He didn't want His disciples arrested. Well, I mean, A, because He cared for them. He didn't want them to go through the pain. B, he knew they couldn't bear it anyway because Peter said, hey, I'll die for you. And the first person that questions, he says, I don't know the man. He knew they weren't ready. But C, he preserved them. He wanted them preserved because he knew they had a job to do. They had to go out and proclaim his name to the world. They had a message that they were to entrust to faithful people that then those people might boldly testify. And then those people from those people might boldly testify, and so forth and so on as the ripple effect goes. So we are preserved for a time that we might proclaim. All our days are numbered. Everybody in this room, everybody born, everybody who will be born until Jesus comes back, every last day we have is numbered. I have no idea how long I'll live or how long you will live. One of us could die today. We may live another 50 years. Jesus may come back tomorrow. But what I do know as a minister of the gospel, as a student of the word, at the very least, whatever we're called to do, we are called to proclaim Christ in the world in some way, shape, or form, and to do so lovingly, to do so charitably, but to do so boldly. Paul is reminding Timothy of this. He's reminding us because it just is so easy to, or to place our preservation in purely selfish terms. But God doesn't say, God doesn't say, hey, I've preserved you, now just live at ease. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Jesus says, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and come after me. So there, there is something involved in this. One might ask, well, doesn't God say, won't my holy one, or my holy ones won't see decay, or, or doesn't Christ speak of us as being preserved as body and soul? Well, yeah, those things are true. Those things are said of us. 
But we need to see that the free gift of preservation, it does come with a job description, <laughs> namely bold proclamation. Not earn this, but go out and proclaim this. You can't earn it. It's been given. Now go out and proclaim it. Proclaim it to the world. Proclaim it in your communities. Proclaim it where you have an opportunity to proclaim. So when we think about the disciples, why were they preserved? Proclaim Christ to the world. Why was Paul rescued and preserved? Proclaim Christ to the world. Why are we preserved for a time? For the glory of God and to proclaim Christ to the world. And we need to take that charge seriously. I mean, of course, I'm preaching to myself here. The question I'm asking this week is, am I looking for opportunities to proclaim Christ to the world? When I get those opportunities, am I being bold to proclaim Christ to the world? And that doesn't always mean purely evangelizing people who don't know. It certainly means that. But it also means coming alongside people who do and encouraging them. We never know what word of encouragement God may use in the life of another for them to go out and boldly proclaim Christ to the world. So with those thoughts in mind, there's an idea I want for us to see, and it's this from this text, that God preserves us for ministry and in judgment. God preserves us for ministry, i.e. the ministry of His Word, and in the judgment. So when we think about this, what is kind of one of the things we're looking at through the lens of this Scripture is a sense of boldness that we're given in Christ for living. So God gives us a boldness to live. We're going we're gonna to buttress that point here in just a minute by looking at the text itself. But when we think about this in proclamation and suffering, Paul mentions both, proclamation and suffering, the gospel gives us confidence. Now, where is the prime example of that? In, in, in proclamation and suffering, we see Jesus, who is the prime example. And it's easy for us to say, well, of course Jesus is a great example. He was God incarnate. This is true. He is God incarnate. But there was a simple philosophy by which Jesus built his life that you and I can definitely emulate. Jesus told people that he did not entrust himself to men because men are capable of deceit and wickedness. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When we take our need to please people off the table to some degree, and we live our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God, we live our lives entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, not the one who is fickle, not the one who's hypocritical, not the one who's judgmental, not the one who likes us insofar as we don't step on their toes, not the one who likes us insofar as we do what they want, but the one who judges justly, it becomes a liberating experience. Now, I'm not laboring for your acceptance. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm laboring to honor Him. It's easier said than done, of course. So I'm not saying up here, so go out and start offending people because it's easy. And our goal should never be to be offensive for offense's sake. We should be charitable. We should be kind. We should be humble. We should be willing to give the benefit of the doubt. But we should never concede truth. And we should never compromise For the sake of conversation, just so that we don't lose our voice. Beloved of God, can I tell you this? We need to not be jerks. (laughs) We need to not be unkind. But we need to risk it when it comes to relationships for the sake of the truth. There are many things in life we can compromise. Truth isn't one of them. 
Well, I've heard people say, well, I'm a truth teller. And that's code talk for I can be unkind. That's not what we mean by truth. And I've also heard people say, well, I just, I just love grace and I'm, I'm just too kind and loving. That's code talk for I don't want to tell somebody else what's true. That's also not loving. There has to be a median point in there where we're saying, I want to be honest and I want to love the truth, but I want to be kind and compassionate and caring. We can be kind. We can be honest. We can be compassionate and we can be truthful. Those things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the Bible places them together. Paul begins building on this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. I'm going to stop right there. Why does he start with this word, therefore? As I've told you many times in seminary, we were taught, what is the therefore, therefore? It's looking back. It's rooting what Paul is saying now in something that he has previously said. He has just told Timothy and us, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So why am I talking about boldness this morning since that word is not mentioned in the paragraph we read? For this reason right here, what Paul is saying is everything he's rooting here, now he's challenging Timothy to do and us, is rooted in this idea that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Read, a, a spirit of boldness, I can be bold and confident, a spirit of love that, shouldn't, that should also have charity and self-control or even discipline or even sober-mindedness. Those, any of those would work right there. So since the Holy Spirit has given us a power and a boldness and even a deep-seated love, one of the things, one of the outflows of that is we are not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And we live in a culture that that's exactly what it seeks to do. It seems to bring shame and disrepute on the testimony. And too often, we kind of will wilt to the background because we don't want to be thought of as judgmental. We don't want to be thought of as the phrase that I, I cannot stand, I hate it, on the wrong side of history. We don't want to be thought of as irrelevant. And yet, there is no greater time than now for the Christian message to be relevant, to be right to be needed. But of course, I'll keep coming back around to this. How we say what we say is just as important what we say. How we say what we say is just as important as what we say. We've got to, be, we've got to remember that. He says, therefore, the Holy Spirit has given us this power, has given us this boldness. We can live without shame. But he tells us here, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of his prisoner. So Paul is referencing himself, this person who is, Paul is imprisoned now over the gospel. He says, don't be ashamed of either of the gospel or the gospel ministers. Why? Because their labor is in the truth, laboring for what is true. They're laboring for what is right. They are investing in people's hearts. That's what the gospel truth is trying to do, is make an investment in the heart of another person. It's getting to the core of our humanity. It's saying, I'm not content for you to believe lies because you hear a bunch of them. 
It's not saying that I have the corner of the market on truth. It's saying that I am a sojourner in this land, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the truth that I possess is not my own. It is the truth of God, and I am a messenger here to give you this truth because it has given me life, and I want to see it give you life. But Satan has done his work well. He's gone before you and me and made people think that the Christian message is hate. It's bigotry. It's misogynistic. It seeks to keep women down. It advocates slavery and so many other lies that, beloved, we are called upon in a culture of death to stand up and to combat and to not yield. But look at what he says here. <laughs> he takes, I mean, he kicks it up a notch. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or his prisoner. But, in the Greek text, this is, there, that but there operates as a strong adversative. Brad, what does that mean? It means it is a very emphatic way of changing directions. Not only are we to not be ashamed, but we need to go one step further. Not only are we not to be ashamed, but we are called upon to suffer. Do you know what's interesting about this? But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That but share in the suffering is not a suggestion. That is an express command by the Apostle Paul that is written in such a way as to not suggest but to command us to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In this context, what does that mean? That means being willing to not be ashamed of those who are suffering and to lock arms with them and say, now your burden is my burden. How are we praying for the persecuted church? How do we serve the persecuted church? Are we willing in our own culture to accept whatever persecutions come our way in the context of American soil for the sake of the gospel? Paul says you shouldn't contemplate whether or not you should. You're, you're called, to, called to share in those sufferings. By the same power, God, we've been given a spirit, read Holy Spirit, of not of fear, but of power and, and love and self-control, but share in suffering for the gospel. By what? By your own strength, by your own cunning, by your own smarts. None of those. By the power of God. That means God has empowered us. When we start thinking, well, I could never do what they do, and it's easy. Have you ever read martyr stories and thought, there's no way. I could not do that. Let me let you in on a little secret. Before they had to go through that, they probably thought the same thing. There's one story of one man who was to be burned at the stake the next day, and he was in his jail cell waiting on it. And there was a candle that was lit there so that he could have some light in his cell, and he walked over to the candle, and he put his hand over it, and he snatched it back. And he said out loud, his cellmates could hear him. That's how we know the story. He said out loud, I can't do this. And one of his fellow martyrs who was to be killed said, the Spirit will give you the power in your time of need. And he died with a song on his lips. I don't celebrate his death, but we often think we can't, and we're told in Scripture that the power of God in us can. I could never say that to those people. The Spirit of God in you could lead you to. I could never take on that burden or hardship. The Spirit of God in you could empower you to. This is where walking by the Spirit becomes so important, that when we are walking by the Spirit, we're walking in the power of the Spirit. And so the same power that gives us a natural boldness, it gives us endurance. 
The same power that gives us a sense of what to say will give us the strength to bear the burden that we need to bear. And so Paul builds on this. He says, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so he's, oh, by the way, verses 8 to 14 in the Greek text is just one sentence, one long sentence. And so by the power of God, and then he builds on that, by the power of God, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now let's stop right there. So this power of God that emboldens us, it gives us the grace to walk through what we have to walk through. It saved us, this power. It's the one who has, he is the one who has called us. It's his calling in our lives. He is the one who gave us a holy life. He is the one who has given us purpose. So everything that we are is rooted in who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. So we've been given our salvation, our holy calling, our purpose is all in God. And so when we stray from God, it's no wonder we live in a culture of people who are lost, who are twisting in the wind. Because when you separate yourself out from the Lord, what is your purpose? Well, you don't know. Maybe it's to have all the pleasure you can muster until you get to the end of that road and you realize there's no hope in this. There's no peace here. There's no life in this. Or maybe you think if you work enough and you amass enough that you'll be happy and it never, it never comes to fruition because purpose and life and peace and hope are located in the presence of God. And when we separate out from that, we're missing a large part of our humanity. And so Paul reiterates, works don't earn it. This is given by grace. But he gives us what is the linchpin of all this, which he gave us, this is verse 9, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What is Paul's favorite prepositional phrase? In Christ Jesus Our purpose is there, our life is there, our boldness is there, our power is there. The authority by which we live is all in Christ Jesus. And so we only experience life and God's richness in Christ. Because when you think about it, when you start looking at life, you start looking at Scripture, what we realize is that it is only in Christ Jesus that we realize the promises of God. That's what we're told. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. It is only in Christ Jesus that the image of God in us is restored. Broken, sinful humanity has the image of God, but it's been shattered. It's been messed up. It's it's opaque. You can't, it's not altogether clear. It's, you could see it, but if something has to happen for it to be fully and finally restored, we have to be in Christ. We have to be found by Christ. We only find nourishment for our souls in Christ Jesus. We only realize by this text, we can see, our purpose and calling in Christ Jesus. And as I've said to you many times before, we only realize the fullness of our humanity in Christ Jesus. Humans separated from God have a flawed view of what it means to be human. How do you know that? Because all you have to do is look at the history of philosophy and thought and ask yourself, did, did atheists come up with these notions of, of 
making humans more animalistic than they we are because they were reading Scripture or because they failed to see the imago Dei, that is the image of God, imprinted on each soul, and so life becomes relatively meaningless. Beloved, all you have to do is read a little bit of history to see when you separate something out from a Christian worldview, from a biblical worldview, it's easy to see where our culture gets to and why it goes there because it is flapping in the wind. But Paul builds on this. Now has been manifested, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What, 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 does, what does Paul say here? Well, it's making a statement about the incarnation itself, that the incarnation brought brought the gospel to fruition for the people of God. So, um, and which now has been manifested or revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. The incarnation is the revelation of God. So it does three things here that I'm going to just touch on briefly. It reveals God, the incarnation does. It breaks the power of death through the resurrection and or the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And it gives eternal light and life. That's exactly what Paul tells us right here. And so the gospel reveals the truth of God, God's character, God's purpose. We see God displayed who Jesus is the express image of the Father. We see that in Paul. We see that in John's prologue, the first chapter of John, the first 18 verses. So Jesus brings a revelation of who God is, God's character, God's purpose. But what Jesus does that is very specific too is He nullifies the curse through His own death. Brad, what do you mean? The primary curse of sin was death. For God knows in that day that you eat, you will surely die. And so that's part of the curse. What does Jesus do? He doesn't, when Jesus nullifies the curse, what we don't mean is that he means that we will never die a physical death. If you think about what physical death is, it's a separation. It's the separation of body from soul. Hence, we lament because this is not the way it's supposed to be. As someone who is dead in their sins, as Paul talks about in Romans, we understand that there is a, a real and significant separation that exists between them and God. And so we think about the curse, physical death and spiritual death, and Jesus nullifies that curse. How? Through coming and dying the death we deserve. And so now, when we die, which was originally a curse, we open in the presence of God. Our eyes open in the presence of God. So we can legitimately say Jesus nullifies the curse of death because now death ushers us into the glory of heaven and the newness of resurrection. Beloved, talk about taking the curse and turning it on its head and so giving us hope and truth and peace. So Jesus nullifies the curse through his own death and reunites us with God. But look, he gives us light and life, two things that we need to have fellowship with God. Two things, the life because we are dead in sin and light because we walk in darkness. And all these things come, uh, another prepositional phrase, through the gospel, through the gospel, the message of life and hope and life restored. Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Paul was called to proclaim this in a culture of death. You're not Paul, and I am not Paul. We're not called to be Paul. 
in any way, shape, or form. We are called to proclaim this life in a culture of death. You have your gifts. I have mine. And we are called to proclaim truth in our culture that needs to hear Christ. Paul builds on this. For, I, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is, we could say, which is also why I suffer as I do. Again, coming back around, what is the truth? That the gospel, gospel faithfulness leads to suffering. But again, for the second time, Paul says, for which is, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. He says something very similar in Romans 1. I am not ashamed. In Romans 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of life and salvation. He says here, I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In other words, I am not ashamed, not because I'm powerful enough to keep it, because God has entrusted me with this message. He will keep it in me. He will hold it there. God is able to guard the truth and truth-tellers. When we look at history, that's what God does. Truth-tellers die, but not before their message has been proclaimed. What Paul is telling us is that he possessed real confidence in the face of opposition. Why? Because no matter how powerful that opposition is, it cannot thwart God. It can't. There's just something past finding out, something past... um, being able to uproot that God plants in us. But he says that day here, he is able to guard until that day, and he talks about Anisiphorus, and he talks about God granting him mercy on that day. So clearly he's got a specific day in mind. What is he driving at? The day of Christ Jesus, the day of consummation, the day of judgment, that God is able to keep what he needs in play until the day that Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. And in the wake of this, he says, I believe God's, or God will keep what he's entrusted to me. And so then he, he tells Timothy this. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow here is, again, it's an express command. He's telling Timothy to follow the precepts of the gospel, to stay, remain anchored in Christ, to deny himself, to keep himself clear on who Christ is and who He is, to follow the good example. So it's important that we set good examples. That's a conviction point for me personally, that we follow the pattern of sound words. Again, we don't have to get, we don't have to get novel. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just follow the pattern of sound words. It's all there. All we do is follow it. And on the heels of that, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, express command, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He tells that to Timothy, and he's speaking to us to stay faithful to the message. How? By our own cunning? By our own wit? No, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, all we do, we do in the power of the Spirit. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that it is in Him that we live, move, and have our being. We should walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, follow the Spirit as He guides us in truth. But we know, as Paul brings this paragraph to a close, we know that that puts us in the realm of hardship. Like, it's never going to get easier, ever, ever. It won't. In fact, we could even argue, perhaps, that we'll only get harder. If you speak to saints who are older than you and who have more life experience under, your, under their belt, I will almost guarantee, 
guarantee you, they will tell you, it hasn't gotten easier. In fact, many of the ones that I have interacted with throughout my ministry have spoken of ways in which it's gotten harder. I'll tell you one way, because if you live long enough, you see your share of death. And death is a big deal. And to watch people and loved ones die, it just reminds you of the preciousness of life, the fragility of life. But we see times change. We see people change. You've lived and you've walked the Christian faith long enough. You've seen someone who you thought was a genuine brother and sister or sister turn out to be false. You live long enough. You have people turn on you and make fun of you and deride you and degrade you and shun you and ostracize you because the gospel has hardships. Fidelity is a costly endeavor. It's so easy to read the stories romantically of Joseph, of Daniel, Noah, of Abraham, of Moses, of David, of Paul, of Peter, of John, all these biblical characters. It's so easy to live in a world where Christianity is marketed and sold to romanticize these people and forget that Paul says we despaired of our lives almost to the point of death. We were anxious to the point of death. You see, beloved, gospel hardships are real. Fidelity is a costly endeavor. And we look at the examples of Scripture. May we be heartened and bolstered, but not romanticize them. They, it was painful. Paul says as much. That was abandoned. You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. We have no idea who Phygelus and Hermogenes were. But if you want to talk about that, Paul mentions Asia. When you think about the Roman province, don't think of Asia proper as you think of it now. Some portions of it, yes. But when you go back to Acts and you read Paul's most tenured place as in Ephesus, that at the time was a part of Asia, he knew and loved those Ephesian people probably as well or better than any other church he planted and anywhere else. And he tells us that all who are in Asia abandoned me. Now, you tell me, beloved, that that's not a painful for a man who's invested his life in people to then be abandoned by said people. For them to, in essence, say, you are a shame to us. We fear what happened to you. We have nothing for you. You are on your own. Can you imagine hearing the manacles clack shut or the gate swing closed only to know that you had no one. I'm not being dramatic, just trying to make us feel the weight of what Paul has experienced here, because it's easy to say, all who were in Asia abandoned me. Among those are Phygelus and Hermogenes. These are real people. Who were Phygelus and Hermogenes? We don't know. Were they leaders in the church? Were they personal friends of Paul? Sure, those could be either. It could be both. It could be neither. What we do know is Paul knew them, and we know that they left Paul. So, why do we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly? Because people can be fickle. If my worth is drawn from how many people like me, I'm cruising for destruction. Here's what, I, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying avoid strong relationships. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul would tell us either. Dive into those relationships. Dive in head first. Trust in Christ and knowing that you might get hurt. It's part of life. But we dive in knowing that in some places we are going to get hurt, but the relationship is worth it. But the core of who we are is entrusted to Christ. Because as, as though, though there are 
the phygelises and the hermogenes. There's also the anisophorus. And if you think about the, the beginning of his name, Onissi, must from Philemon, useful. Onissi, Forrest, some cognate of that, in some sense a useful brother. Anisiphorus was faithful. He refreshed Paul. He was not put off by chains. He was not embarrassed. He was not afraid. He loved the apostle well. How can we be a blessing to those who have served us well? Beloved, if you have people in your life whom you love, are you praying that God's mercy find them again and again and again and again and again? People who've refreshed your soul, are you praying that God's mercy finds them until the day of Christ Jesus? Can we agree, hey, that's a good prayer. There are people who refresh your soul, who bring life and, and the sweetness of Christ into your life. Can we be praying for that brother or sister? God, may your mercy find them until the day of Christ Jesus. And on that day, may they have more mercy still. What does it mean to be faithful? How can we be faithful at the chapel? One way we can do it, obviously, is to honor God. How can we be faithful at the chapel? Is love well in hard times. Loving well in hard times. Giving of ourselves to people who are downtrodden and who are broken because we never know when we're going to be downtrodden and broken and need that love. Fidelity is possible in hard times only by the power of Christ. When we think about the burning issue in Christianity, what is the burning issue in Christianity? It is this. Faithfulness. 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 The entirety of the Christian life is always a matter of faithfulness. And this faithfulness is never predicated on our sheer ability to do the right thing. Faithfulness is never based on your sheer ability to do the right thing. It is a matter of the power of the Spirit and that ability that it gives us to not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, we live in a culture that calls gross sin boldness, calls gross sin pride. There's no shame in our culture about gross sin. That's not what it is at all. The easy thing in life is to fulfill the desires of the flesh because in our culture it often costs us nothing, not a thing. In fact, those things get praised. See, Jesus calls us to a much harder way. He calls us to the task of walking by the Spirit. But even in that task, He gives us the strength to be faithful and beloved of God. That is a gift. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this Word this morning. There is so much here, so much more we could say, so much more that I could say, but we leave it here for You to do Your work in us, to do the work necessary for us to grow profoundly, to grow deep, to grow in our recognition of our need for You. God, You've given us all we need for boldness and strength and power and humility and love. Help us to tap into that. God, so often we live inferior lives because we're afraid of offense. We're afraid of alienation. We're afraid of being ostracized or we're just afraid. Give us a boldness in the face of that fear because the Holy Spirit works and lives in us to love well, to speak well, and to live well. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.